0: We'll open up your Bibles to First Peter chapter five, where we today focus on verses eight and nine. You know, Josiah was just praying about hope and the hope that we have, but sometimes it is hard to see hope. Especially as this world seems to be getting darker and darker. And not only does secular society speed headlong into the darkness, but it is being relentlessly driven by a supernatural foe. The speed and the fury of this godless madness is dizzying, and sometimes it's hard to see hope. But that is not what you have been born into. According to his great mercy, God has caused you to be born again into a living hope. In other words, we are a people that are fueled by hope. We are a people living on hope. No matter the troubles of the world, no matter the darkness of night, there is an unfading hope in the risen sun. And we are a people who run towards that hope. Hope has to do with drive, with joy, with expectation, with the things that make life worth living and certain deaths worth dying. A person that lives by hope is a person whose heart is on fire. Is your heart on fire? Burning. For the king's victory to be consummated, for truth to be unassailed, to see earth transformed by heaven, to finally touch the one that loves us and gave himself for us. Hope sets our hearts on fire. We burn for these things. Not even the deepest, dark, nor the most enduring anguish can quench such a living hope. And we will not let it, because these hopes are grounded in the unshakable, unmovable promises of God, yours forever. But of course, there is a danger, a grave danger, for we have a cunning and powerful adversary. He is not powerful enough to shake the promises of God. So instead, he tries to shake your faith. He tries to get you to doubt the promises of God and the God who promised them. And just as he did when he poisoned the hearts of our first parents. It's always been a strategy. Our enemy is a destroyer of hope and a devourer of faith. And so today we want to ask these questions why must we have sober minds? How does Satan oppose us, and how do we resist him? And I ask those questions and, I hope, find some answers. Let's read the passage today. I'm going to start in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, and read through verse 9. And really, I'm going to start halfway through verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Father, as we go to your word today, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through it. You're our Father, and we know that you love us. You showed this so profoundly, marvelously on the cross. The price of your own Son, you redeemed us as part of your people. And so I pray that as we consider these words today, we would not see fear, but love. Deep, transforming, peacemaking love in our hearts. I pray that all the threats that come against us from the enemy would be extinguished by the faith that we have and Jesus Christ, who you've given to us. Help us this morning to understand and use my words, Father. In Christ's name, amen. So last week we looked at the relationship between humility and anxiety. In writing to the churches that were plagued by local persecutions, that were on the verge of a war between Rome and the Jews, Peter is giving the elect exiles the most Powerful weapon to combat their many anxieties, humble dependency on God. The deepest root of anxiety is pride. Because pride tries to control, because pride fears what it cannot control, because pride does not not trust God and his promises, therefore the only antidote for anxiety is to humbly depend upon God. So it is no coincidence then that Peter would immediately pivot from the enemy that lives within pride and its anxieties to the enemy that lives without, the devil, who is the progenitor of all pride. And Peter's pivot point is on the mind. You see that in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful, he says. You know, that's the third time that Peter is exhorting us to be sober minded in his letter. He did it in chapter 1, verse 3, in verse 13. He did it in chapter 4, verse 7, and now he's doing it again in verse 8. Be sober minded three times. That should be enough to make you sit up and pay attention. This must be an important thing for him to three times say it. Be sober minded. And so, what does it mean to be sober minded? And what I'm explaining now, I I am explaining for the third time. So certainly alcohol can affect your mind, but Peter is talking about so much more than inebriation. Being sober-minded is about being awake to reality as God has defined it. It means loving the truth. It means assessing the world and yourself as God assesses. It means understanding the will of God for your life and for the world. A person that does not have a sober mind suffers from spiritual drowsiness. They think only of trivialities. They are comfortable in their shallow thoughts and they would rather escape than consider the weightier issues. An escape is so easily found in a screen. This is the mind of a fool. Solomon said, How long, O simple ones, Will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. Do not be the fool, destroyed by your own complacency. Sober your mind. See the world. See your situation according to the revelation of God's word. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. Being sober-minded is being a thinker. Thinking about the things of God about the travails of this world, about your inner struggles and strengths, and all according to the revealed will of God as found in the Bible. Perhaps you think that, perhaps it is difficult for you to think upon these weightier issues, and perhaps it's hard to understand Scripture and to discern the will of God. Well, Likewise, a person that does not apply the appropriate exercise, will find it difficult to run five miles. But with exercise comes endurance, and with thinking comes understanding. And Peter's admoni- admonition to be sober-minded is akin to saying, exercise. Exercise your mind that you might be sober-minded. And with a sober mind comes watchfulness. Watchfulness. See how Peter goes from a sober mind to a watchful attitude right there in verse 8? A sober mind produces a watchful attitude. A sober mind understands the dangers around you and it seeks to mitigate those dangers. So a fool would walk into the middle of a freeway and lay down and take a nap. That would be foolish. The only reason that they are comfortable enough to fall asleep right there is because they are dangerously ignorant. They're stupid. They're dangerously ignorant. They're a fool. There's a famous saying in mountain climbing that says, your greatest threat is the one you don't know about. A sober-minded person is alert to these dangers, knows about them, watches out for them, and they would never go sleeping on the freeway, let alone heedlessly walk into one. Now a qualifier here. A sober-minded, watchful person does not go hide in fear and never do anything. A sober-minded person wisely discerns the risk, prepares for it, and then casts all of their anxieties on God. And they trust Him. They trust Him. So when Peter says, be watchful to the sober-minded person, be watchful, he is saying, watch out! He stands on the edge of the freeway and he says, watch out! Why does he say that? Verse 8 again. Your adversary... The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He gives us three descriptions of the same person. Your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion. So we're going to take each one of these at a time. Your adversary. It means opponent, enemy, In this time where hope might be hard to see, you could be tempted to look at certain human individuals such as government leaders and think that you see an enemy in them. But behind them is a much darker power, a much greater foe. Even if it seems like whole swaths of humanity are amassed against us, we do not ultimately wrestle against these. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, said Paul, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Hitler controlled a gigantic, powerful military machine, and it was evil to the core. But far greater, far darker, far more deadly, Satan controls an enormous incomprehensibly powerful multitude of demons. Though the armies of men may be arrayed against us, it is truly the devil and his demonic forces that we battle. He strives against you. He conspires against you. He spends himself against you. He is bent on your destruction, and every follower of Christ, every one of us elect exiles, faces a foe that does not merely want you to die, but he ravenously wants you to forsake Christ and be cast into eternal torment. That's what he wants, and he works for your eternal destruction. He's called the devil. From the Greek word diabolos, a word that means accuser, slanderer, false witness. Satan was the ruler of this world. The Bible calls him that in many places. And as ruler, he was unrestrained, and he led the nations astray. He looked deep into the wickedness of man. He saw it all. He knew how weak we are to resist evil. He knows how much we love evil. And so he drives the nations. He drove the nations deeper and deeper into that darkness. And as ruler of the world, he would go before God, the Creator, and say, look at your creation. Like some angelic prosecutor demonic prosecutor and he would make accusation sinners all of them and he especially loved to do it with those that god called his elect we see this described in the book of job as satan accuses job before god then satan answered the lord and said does job fear god for no reason Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. God then allowed Satan to afflict Job. The book of Job tells of Job's wrestlings through horrific suffering the worst of suffering. And it's a book that's about God's faithfulness and sovereignty and goodness despite our suffering. And in the end, you know what's revealed? That Job's faith was not false, but the accusations of Satan were false. Peter, who wrote us this letter, even fell under the accusative eye of Satan. And Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Peter's other name, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And God allowed Satan to afflict Peter. And as a result, Peter denied Christ three times. But these denials were temporary, and Peter's faith held, not because Peter was amazingly faithful. But because Christ prayed for him. So, in both of these cases, God is giving audience to Satan. Do you realize that? He's, he's listening to Satan's accusations and claims, giving him ear. And Satan's accusations are relentless, they do not stop, they never would stop. And so, you might ask yourself, why is God giving Satan an audience? Why is he listening? Does Satan have any credibility in the divine courtroom? Well, in a way, he does. Because humans are fallen, and the best of us are filled with wickedness. God has set his favor upon the elect, and so it is Satan's joy to mock God's decision. To mock his favor. To mock the elect. Because if he can show that these elect are wicked, are sinners, then he can point to God and say, You fool! Look at them! And he'd be right to do that. And so Satan continually reminded God that his people were evil. Saying about the elect, Liar. Thief, coward, weak, sinner, endless, endless accusations. And they were right. And he's called a roaring lion. And Peter says that when he writes that down about the adversary, it would have immediately drawn to mind something that many of Peter's readers would have seen, perhaps before they came to Christ in the Roman amphitheater, as they watched the strongest of men be torn apart by the ferocity of lions. In the year 107, anticipating his own death in the jaws of a lion, Ignatius wrote wrote this, Let me be given to the wild beasts For through them I can attain unto God. I am God's wheat, and I am ground by the teeth of wild beasts, that I might be found pure bread. Come fire and cross and grapplings with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, hacking of limbs, crushing of my whole body. Come cruel tortures of the devil to assail me. Only be it mine to attain unto Jesus Christ. It's unimaginable what they faced. We are blessed to live in the time that we do. But Peter brings to mind this terrible image of Roman bloodlust that our adversary is like him, like a roaring lion. And he hunts. He seeks the elect. He's hungry to swallow us whole. Just as the Roman lions, he is pitiless when he devours. Do you know what? His teeth have been cut. Do you know that God no longer gives him ear and will not hear him anymore? Satan is not welcome in the courts of heaven, for the risen king has judged him and thrown him out. Jesus was just beginning to establish his kingdom. And when he was doing this, the disciples went out and others went out and they, they proclaimed the gospel all around. The kingdom of God was advancing through the proclamation of the gospel and then Jesus sees this vision of the future, of things about to happen and so he prophesies this. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Like lightning, Satan was be flung from the courts of heaven. And how would this happen? Jesus told us that too. Now is the judgment of this world Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. (laughs) A king is coming. A new king. When Christ was hoisted upon that cross, the judgment of our adversary was complete. The lies, the wickedness of Satan was on full display with the death of the perfectly righteous, entirely innocent Son of God. It was a death that Satan orchestrated. And when one so perfect died in such a way, it outed Satan for every one of his lies, every one of his arrogant thoughts, all of his wickedness. And again, Jesus said, just hours before that cross, the ruler of this world is judged. Thirty years later, thereabouts, Paul writes, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. The cross of Christ, shameful to him in a moment, is our enemy's eternal shame. So how are Satan and his demonic forces Disarmed? We read this earlier in First Peter. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He, Christ, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So here's how it worked. In death, Jesus was proved perfectly righteous. And Satan was proved judged. In resurrection, the Lion of Judah cut the teeth of the devourer. In ascension, Christ takes the throne, subjecting to the demonic and casting out Satan. And the king reigns, the rightful king. Christ reigns as king and heaven knows no contest. He reigns supreme. And Satan is a defeated foe. Now let us consider that line in verse 8. That he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's defeated, but he's still on the hunt. No longer being given access to heaven's throne. Cast down from there, he now roams the earth. And he is still the accuser. But his accusations, he now spins them into other ears. You see, he and his demons, they crawl through the weeds of our lives. And from their hiding place there, they say to us, coward, liar, thief, sinner, You hypocrite. You're worthless. Does God really love you? Are you really one of His? And those accusations work because we know they're true. We are cowards and liars and hypocrites. And sinners, every one of us. But convincing us of these things is not the devil's winning strategy. He uses the accusations to get us to believe that God's word isn't true. That he doesn't love you. That you cannot trust him. There's a reason to doubt him and his promises. Your adversary... The devil devours like a lion by getting you to believe lies about God and lies about God's Word. And when you abandon trust in God, you throw yourself into the yawning abyss and the lion licks his lips. Verse 9 says, Resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You know that as a result of David's sin, we read about it in Second Samuel, a single angel slew 70,000 people. Satan is the greatest of all fallen angels. What are you going to do to resist him? But you can. And that is proof that Satan is a defeated foe and that his teeth have been cut. Resisting the devil doesn't happen by having a strong will. It doesn't happen by saying some special rebuke into the air. Resisting the devil and his storms of accusation happen is only possible when you lash yourself to the mast that is your faith. Peter doesn't really get specific or practical and tell us how to do that. But Paul gives us a lot of help. Because he too understood our frailty, the power of sin that still resides with us, within us. And so he writes, Paul writes, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So just as Peter said a few verses earlier, we must humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. We must reckon ourselves weak, needing to be strengthened by God, and depending upon Him for that strength. We believe, we have faith, that Christ indeed will be our strength, though we feel all the frailty of our humanity. He will be your strength. And go to him and say, I am weak. I am helpless. Help me. Paul also wrote, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So your strength to resist the devil doesn't come from within. It comes from without. It comes from God, and he gives it so freely. These pieces of armor that I've just read about, it's not all of the pieces of armor, but there are a few that I want to highlight. The helmet of salvation. Wear this helmet confidently like a crown. It is yours to wear. Christ has given it to you, He purchased that crown with His own blood. Know you are His, that He rescued you from death. You are saved. Put on the crown, the helmet. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. With the Word, you cut down all of Satan's temptations. Do you know know that all the temptations Satan brought against Jesus were ultimately temptations to get him to doubt his Father? Every temptation and every doubt, Christ cut down with Scripture. Scripture. Jesus was a man that was saturated in the promises of God that that are found in the Word. He relied on them. He recites them. His reality was shaped by the reality of God as God has given it in Scripture. So if it's good enough for Christ, isn't it good enough for you? Take up this sword. Take up the Word. The shield of faith. Lift it to extinguish the fiery accusations of the devil. Every word that would make you doubt God's love for you, that would steal your confidence in Christ and in Christ's work, all of those darts are extinguished by faith. I mean, put that mental image in your mind. This flaming dart is launched at you with malice behind it, and it hits the shield and it's extinguished, right? It's done. That's what we do with our faith when these lies come against us. When you hear in your mind, you're worthless. You don't matter. You're not Christ's. What does a sober mind do? You lift your eyes from this place of darkness. And you look once more upon the righteous King. He suffered the wrath of God so that the unrighteous would be made righteous. And in this, you become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. That's unbelievable. All your wickedness has been forgiven. And you are hidden in Christ. United with Christ. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see you and your sinfulness. He sees Christ and his worthiness. And he says, I love you. So set your hope fully on the promises of God and all these flaming darts will be extinguished. He has chosen you. He loves you. He has redeemed you. He will resurrect you. He has defeated Satan and he will give you a crown of victory. Jesus once said, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. When the Son of God became man, he entered the strong man's house. Through his life and his death and his life again, he bound the strong man. And now he is plundering the house. We, we are the plunder. We are the jewels that he steals, that he redeems. What can the strong man do? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is Christ who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us you hear that? In the place of the accuser, the devil, now stands the Savior interceding for us. The one who successfully prayed that Peter would not be sifted is now praying for you. Continually, endlessly. Where there was once endless accusation, now there is endless pleading. This one I love. No longer are the failings of the elect heard before the throne, but only the imparted righteousness of Christ. In all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The lion of Judah has cut the teeth of the devourer. The devil's accusations now fall on deaf ears. Our adversary has been defeated. Now you, now you, resist the devil by standing firm on these truths. But watch out. Discipline your mind to be sober. Because the moment you become complacent, that your faith becomes lazy, there is the lion lurking, waiting. If you are one of Christ's, and He is indeed interceding for you, you will not be devoured. But even falling into the mouth of blunted teeth, is a terrible experience. Watch out. Be sober minded. Stand firm in your faith. Father, what a good gift you have given us in Jesus Christ, who invaded the strong man's house to bind him and has bound him, has judged him. And now he's taking. All that he wants. God, thank you that you want us. That you've chosen us. That you love us. That you redeem us. That we will be resurrected. That we will know victory forever because of Christ and what Christ has done. Lord, help us to see that in our moments of weakness, in our moments of darkness, in our moments of perceived strength. In all of our moments, help us to see with great clarity, with sober minds, the work of Christ, completed, and ours to enjoy. Give us eyes to see, and ears to hear, and hearts on fire with hope. It's in Christ that we hope, and in his name that we pray. Amen.